I am Candace Shalou-Hodge. I am the founder and editor of Whosoever, uh, an online magazine for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Christians, and Whosoever Ministries. And welcome to our call. Tonight we are covering um, the New Testament and homosexuality. And uh, we are joined by Reverend Paul Turner. He is the senior pastor at, uh, I want to say, Garden of Grace, because, hey, <laughs> that's where I'm at. Uh uh, no, that would be General Spirit Christian Church there you in Atlanta, go. Georgia, and uh, he's been there since 1998, and uh, in Atlanta since uh, 1994, and I don't know about you guys, but we've got some rough weather in our area. Uh, Ruth, you're probably getting a lot of snow up there in Cleveland, eh? It's uh, freezing rain. Freezing rain. Ooh, even worse. I'd rather have snow. <laughs> we got like a quarter inch of ice on the street. Oh, uh, well, it's a good night to be in and, and, you know, talk on the phone. Hopefully your phone will hold out. <laughs> Did, is, that a, is that affecting your polls up there? Um, well, I think uh, some people are, are not voting. The desperate part for me is a puppy who sorely needs exercise. Oh, no. Yes, yes. Well, um Paul is uh, very involved in the community there in Atlanta, and uh, he also is the corporate vice president for Whosoever, and he writes a column for Whosoever called Seeds of Hope, and he and his partner Billy have been together for 25 long and wonderful years. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to Paul, but first I wanted to to mention sort of a – uh, how we're going to go this evening. We're going to talk first about uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and then the passage that's in 1 Timothy before we get to Romans 1. And, and then, you know, we'll, we'll give a passing glance to Jude, um, all of the passages that are uh, considered to be the, the quote-unquote clobber passages within the New Testament. Um, but I wanted to tell you about a fellow who wrote to me. Um, I get a lot of letters from people who are really struggling with the Bible, and the New Testament especially, uh, as in our Old Testament um, teleseminar that we did earlier. You know, you can you can sort of contextualize a lot of a lot of these things away, um, and and really sort of put it back into all of the. Um, you know, and, and just basically say, well, that's the Old Testament. We don't follow the Old Testament. But the New Testament becomes a little bit more problematic. And I had a gentleman write to me who really, really, really was upset that no one could tell him what arsenicoites means, what, what the, the word that Paul uses in, uh, it's in First Timothy and in First um, Corinthians 6, 9. And no one could tell him what that meant. And if he couldn't find out exactly what that word meant, he couldn't in good conscience um, consider himself a gay person. He couldn't do it because that one word might condemn him in the Bible. I mean, never mind all of the words of, of comfort and all of the words of affirmation and blessing in the Bible. If this one word condemned him, then it was game over for him. And that was really sad for me because, honestly, I didn't know how to respond because that was that was very hard to, to have one person who's going to hang their entire life on the meaning of one word and one word that we really don't know what it means. Yeah. And Paul is going to talk a little bit more about that, and I think he had a soapbox to get on before he started, though, Paul. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> is that your introduction? I was hoping you were going to talk for uh, just another minute because I'm, I'm doing something here to prove a point. Oh, so, no. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Give me, give me one more second. What would, what would, what would you folks say to that guy who's going to hang his entire existence as a gay person on one word that we don't even really know what it means? Frankly, uh, I think if it wasn't that, it would be something else. You think? You know, 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because it's, he, even he knows it's not rational. Uh, and uh, my guess is he would know it's not rational. So there'd be a million other things he could hang his hat on to justify his self-loathing. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, and, I, I, wrote, I wrote back and, you know, tried to give him the the context around that word and how, you know, it, it really is, I mean, it's two words. It's it's man-bed and it's like lady killer. It's like it, 2,000 years from now, if we lost the context of the word lady killer, no one, we'd be, they'd be guessing, is it a lady who kills? It is, is it someone who kills ladies? You know, they, they would have no context for what, the, what that word meant. And, and Rick Brentlinger, in his excellent book that I'll recommend once again, um, Gay Christian 101, Spiritual Self-Defense for Gay Christians, actually points out that arsenicoids is only used 77 times in 2,100 years of Greek literature from the 8th century B.C. to A.D. 1450. I mean, that's how rare this word is. Mm. And it's only used twice in the Bible. So, to hang and both times by existence. Paul. Yeah, and to hang your entire existence on that one word, it, it, it was really frightening for me. I, I was really at a loss. Okay, I'm ready. All right, Paul, go ahead. Okay, here's my soapbox. Um, and and I, for folks that that are that are here tonight, I I don't want to be offensive. But you're going to have a really, really rough time with tonight's presentation um, if if you're hanging on to the thread that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God, because it's not. <laughs> um, when we had the Old Testament uh, section on this, it was really easy to talk about that our culture and the way that we understand things today are different um, than in Old Testament times. And it was really, um, really pretty easy to explain away Leviticus because, you know, we don't follow half of Leviticus anyway. And so it's pretty easy for us as gay folks to say, hey, if you're not going to apply the fact that you're not supposed to eat shellfish, then you're not going to um, apply to me um, an abomination about who I love. But now that we've moved into the test, uh, New Testament, this becomes more problematic because now we're actually dealing with the way things are said or not said. It's not just a matter of culture. It becomes a matter of how do we interpret certain um, Greek words or Greek words that come from the Hebrew and then was translated into the Latin Vulgate, and it goes from the Latin Vulgate um, into the King James uh, English, and there's some stuff that happens in between. And just by that uh, little trip that I took you on, um, it should be pretty obvious that it's, it's going to be really hard to stand by the claim that what we have today um, that we call canon, that we call the Bible, is without error. Um, I think I mentioned this in passing at the uh, during the last class when I said, you know, first of all, we're talking about ancient languages here. Neither one of the languages that we had from Scripture um, are even languages that are in use 
today. Um, so that makes it very difficult to understand what a particular phrase or a particular word may have meant then as opposed to what it means today. And so with each succeeding translation of the Bible, you have room for error. You have room for, because of your bias, because of what your culture says, interpreting a particular word one way versus the way that it gets the way it was meant originally versus the way that it's interpreted today and i always tell people the best example that i can think of this is that when i first came out um to my family um it, it you know it was announced that i was was gay the word homosexual was not used the, the word gay was used and my grandmother, who God love her, has, has gone home now and knows all the truth, but she was probably the one person that defended my right to be gay up until the day she died. But she initially would cock her head when she would hear the word gay, and, and she didn't quite understand what gay meant, because my grandmother was born in the early 1900s. And gay in the early 1900s meant what? Happy. We have a Christmas carol that says, now we down our gay apparel. And she used to kid me later, late, much later in life. She says, you know, the only thing that she was mad at us um, homosexuals for was that we stole a perfectly good word. <laughs> but it does make my point that when you go from Hebrew, which had absolutely no vowels, there was no separation between words. There was no punctuation. And by simply moving an accent here or there, you could change not only a word, but you could change the whole meaning of a sentence. And you go from the Greek, ancient Greek, which is a, a completely different language than what Greeks speak today, then you begin to understand that when we look at the New Testament and we start picking out those spots that, that are supposed to prove that homosexuality is bad, that we're already in trouble because we don't have the one thing that we need, and that is original transcripts. You know, just about everything that, that was written down um, prior to 70 A.D. and the sacking of Jerusalem got burned or destroyed. Um, we have a New Testament now that has lots of asterisks throughout it, including the gospel, where it'll tell you that in our most reliable manuscripts, this didn't exist. So that we know that it's, a, that it's an add-on later on. I'm going to let Candace play around with the term Aristocotonite because she's a little better versed with that. Um, than I am. But we are going to pay attention in, in this part of my presentation to the word Malachi, um, which is used in 1 Corinthians um, 6 9. And the original reading of that uh, for folks was Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Now, 
step out of your bias for a minute, folks, because we all know that this is going to eventually translate into homosexuality. But listening to those that statement, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, what pops into your mind as to who's not going to inherit the kingdom of God? Anybody? That was a question. <laughs> Sexual deviants, as, we, as they would be called. Say that again, sir. Uh, sexual deviance. Sexual deviance. Okay. Anything else pop out at you? I must be the only one on here that focused then on the term effeminate, which to me means a man behaving like a woman. And the phrase, abusers of themselves with mankind, which my father translated when I was a kid as a male who would masturbate. Yes, I've heard that definition. See, you were all just afraid to say it. We're so afraid to talk about sexuality. I swear to God. <clears throat> okay, so number one, just on the reading of the King James Version, which will, you know, most people will tell you, uh, most of uh, the religious right will tell you anyway, that the King James Version is, in fact, God. It is the voice of God. Just That's on that Jesus simple... Carried. Huh? That's the Bible Jesus carried. Yes, there you go. <laughs> you know, and just on that first reading, you sit there and go, okay, we've already got problems um, in how we're looking at this. Because, number one... What was effeminate in Jesus' time and what's effeminate today is two completely different things. Abusers of themselves with mankind, is that's a phrase that is just open to all kinds of, of interpretation. And it certainly, at the very least, doesn't mean homosexual. Now, to prove my point that these people have no idea really what the word malachoi meant, Let's go to a different interpretation. Let us go to the contemporary English version, which says the following. Don't you know that evil people won't share in the blessings of God's kingdom? Don't fool yourselves. No one who is immoral or worships idol or is unfaithful in marriage or is a pervert or behaves like a homosexual. Now, folks, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that whoever did this translation was taking some liberty with the original Aramaic or Greek or however that came to them. Let's go to the message. Now, there are some who, well, actually, the folks in the religious right used to say that this was a wonderful translation right up until they took some time to read this passage. And now the message by them is considered a paraphrase. <laughs> and, and what it says is, don't you realize that this is not the way to live? Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining in God's kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it, don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. 
a number of you know from experience what I am talking about. For not so long ago, you were on that list. Since then, you have been cleaned up and given a fresh start by Jesus, our Master, our Messiah, and by God present in us, the Spirit. And, of course, the message pulled that a couple of verses past the ninth verse. And then you have the New International Version, which says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. Okay, I get what a male prostitute is. I don't know what a homosexual offender is unless it's what we call a queen today. Again, they're playing with this word, and this word is malachi. If you look it up in Vine's Expository Dictionary, which, by the way, was written in 1937, and I want you all to remember that date because that's really important. Vine's Expository Dictionary, when you look up the word, tells you by definition that the word malachi translates as soft. Literally translated, if you take it right um, from Greek to English, it means soft. Vine's Expository Dictionary goes on to tell you that it was used in one of two ways in Scripture. It was used when it was describing uh, raiment or clothing um, or or a surface. In other words, it's soft to touch, uh, smooth skin, soft skin, soft, um, a, a soft garment. But it was also used in two other ways that were considered derogatory. The first derogatory way was to mean that you were soft uh, in in the way that you think. In other words, uh, you by today's political standards, you were a flip-flopper. You were emotional. You didn't behave as a man, but as a woman. And women in those days were considered emotional, while men were considered strong and warriors, etc. The second definition then was also used, and and it's an interesting word, because remember, this is 1937. Addictions of the flesh, or lewdness. Now, Folks, got to tell you, addictions to the flesh is important because, again, this is 1937. Can you tell me when the DSM-3, not 4, but 3, declared that there was such a thing, mental condition, as sexual addiction? Anybody have a guess? Okay. 1972. Already in 1937, these scholars who wrote Vine's Expository Dictionary for defining all these different Greek words was saying that this word was actually aimed at addictions of the flesh, which has absolutely nothing to do with homosexuality. And when I talk about the fact that we have a translation error with this particular passage, let me walk you through that. You've got malachi that defines as soft, and in some cases, addictions of the flesh or lewdness. 
And when we go from the Latin Vulgate, which got the Greek word malakoi, and we go to the very first translation that we have kind of on a worldwide thing, which is the King James Version, they translate then soft, addictions of the flesh, as effeminate or abusers of themselves. Now, effeminate to them at that particular time period was what? For men who behaved as women. For a man to be wishy-washy. For a man to not be able to make up his mind. To be emotional. And so, here's Paul writing and saying, look, if you're wishy-washy, if you're, if you're like a woman, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. The abusers of themselves then obviously had that, that phraseology comes into play because of that whole idea of sexual lewdness. And you can make a case that they were talking about um, sexual lewdness because of the, the prior, you know, he went the list. He went fornicators, he got, uh, which is sex outside of marriage, and you got adulterers, which are people who are doing it. And abusers probably would have been those people who were having sex at the, at the temples because they were, you know, participating with the prostitutes at that point. So now we've got the King James Version. And, Andy, I'm going to point this question at you. Okay. The King James Version became a problem for Protestants in what year? Right after it was written. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's because anybody who had anything to do with King James knew what he was doing. Actually, it made it into the 1950s. And in 19, I think it was like about 1951, um, there was this commission put together who said, you know what, we've got a lot of problems with the King's English. As a matter of fact, we know that there's a lot of translation problems with the King's English. And one of the reasons that we know that there's a problem with the King's English is because words that we use today do not translate from the King James English. If you go to 1 Corinthians 13 in the King James version of the Bible, it uses the word charity. By the 1950s, we understood charity to mean, hey, somebody's hungry um, and somebody's doing good works, so I'm going to contribute to that or I'm going to be charitable and I'm going to give somebody some money. And when they went back and they looked at what the Greek was at that time, uh, the word in, in Corinthians 13 was agape. Now, the Greeks were very specific in how they described love. They had agape, which meant um, unconditional love. They had eros, which was sexual love. And then they had philios, which was this kind of brotherly, sisterly love. And so when the 50s come along, they knew that there was problems because of culture and because of word usage. And so they sat down and said, we need to rework this. And so you come up with the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, which is really a, a um, what's the word I'm looking for, Candace, help me, um, transliteration. And you get a transliteration when you take original text or a language, and you translate that into the known English, and you use as your guide 
a translation that already exists. So in other words, you try to take the phraseology or the particular word, you get the translation, you get the original translation that it was made, and then you interpret with a new word what that word means. So when we went, and let me see if I can pull this up real quick. You've, you've got um, the, uh, I just lost my whole screen. Uh-oh. Anyway. <laughs> When we, technology, yeah, I'm telling you. When so when they did this work and they did the translation work, you got the, it, because we end up in 1955-56 with what they call the Revised Standard Bible, Revised Standard Version of the Bible. You end up with them looking at Malachi. You now have the definition of uh, from King James, or you have the definition that directly translated as soft, and we go, hmm, I wonder what kind of soft that is. And you look at King James, and you have this phraseology. You have effeminate, and you have abusers of themselves. And the writers sit there and go, oh, well, gee, in in the 1950s, who were effeminate and who were abusers of themselves? Homosexuals. And so we insert the word. Oh yeah, well, you, I, I've I've always thought that the the insertion of homosexuality into the New Testament was a cultural bias because it happened oh, yeah. in the it, it, the Revised Standard Version in the late forties, early fifties. You know that was yeah yeah I, I yeah was, exactly. <laughs> and so, but see, this this is critical, especially when you're having the discussion about what the Bible really does and doesn't say. And when you take this, and when you take a, a phrase like, or a scripture like 1 Corinthians 6, 9, which first of all, to use it to lamb blast homosexuals um, is, is, is doing that whole contexting thing, which isn't fair. But secondly, it becomes an even harder thing to do because the, the fact of the matter is is that they've really mistranslated it. And Candace, you're right. It does come out of that bias because instead of working on a direct translation, they were work and, and it's, it's almost like they completely ignored um, Vine's Expository Dictionary, which is the dictionary um, for, for biblical uh, translation of singular Greek words. Yeah. And and they just blew right by it. I don't know whether they looked at it and they went, oh, well, that's not how we understand what effeminate is. That's not how we understand what abusers of themselves are. Because what we understand is people who are effeminate, they obviously are gay. Those people who abuse themselves, well, who abuses themselves? Well, obviously gay people do. And actually, they wouldn't have even used the word gay. They would have used the term homosexual. Well, and the word homosexual, I point out in the notes, I think, is wasn't coined until somewhere in the 1800s, like 1869, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. So it's it's really, really important then when this gets thrown at us that, that we really understand that maybe, you know, and for the people that, that really want to take the, the, the more literal concept, of scripture, what I always end up saying to them is, well, the original words we may have had in the Greek and the Hebrew may have been accurate, but we've really butchered them um, as we've moved forward since. And we've butchered them out of 
our, our, our cultural bias. And the reason that I'm really comfortable in telling you that Malakoi has, in fact, starting with the... Because the, I tell people that I think that the King James Version is actually accurate based on the definitions of the day. Because, um, and I think I might have mentioned this before, if, uh, if you think about Julius Caesar... Um, in history, he is quoted as being um, a, a wife, or a, I'm sorry, a husband to all women and a wife to all men. And nobody really had any particular problem with that, other than the fact that he was being the receptive partner in um, in his sexual relations with men. And that's where you got into trouble, because, again, that was to behave like a woman. And so for Paul to say that these folks were being wishy-washy or at the, at the minimum, um, and we're going to get into this in Romans where he talks about them giving up the truth for a lie, that really has more to do with the fact that they gave up who they were to be something that they weren't. And, and part of that had to do with the fertility cults that Paul just, you know, just absolutely had a heart attack over, and of course he would have a heart attack over that because he was a Jew, and there was only one God. And when Christ came along, it was even more clear to him. So I want to segue this into letting um, uh, Candace talk a little bit about the whole Aristocotoni thing. But this is a really important piece, that when people start hanging on here that this is the inerrant word of God, it's not. It's not correct. It, it, this, this is just one of many, many, many examples throughout the New Testament where if you don't do the exegetical work and you don't get back and you see what the original translations were and you don't understand it in context of the culture that you get into trouble. And with the writing of the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, you began at that point what was literally a 40 or 50 year odyssey of trying to wipe homosexuals off the face of the earth because Paul said that they weren't going to inherit the kingdom of God and and they were putting words into Paul's mouth. So the, um, uh, the first um, the, the first writers to, ref- to to say what we're saying and to refute some of this were uh, the first uh, book to refute it was in 1954, so that would make perfect sense. It's been uh, argued against this change since about the time it occurred. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yep. That's that's right on the money, Ernie. Uh, Ernie. That's Paul. Aunt Ernie. Where did I get that? <laughs> Andy. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, that's Andy. Um, are there any other questions or comments before we... Uh, Talk a little bit about our Senecoic. Well, help me here. Did that make sense to you all? Yes, absolutely. It did. Yes. Some, some, okay. I, I know that some of the translations just uh, combine the two words and come out with something like homosexuals or homosexual. Right. Well, yeah, and again, and Candace is going to get more into that about because Aristocotoni presents all kinds of problems because it's a compound word. Yeah, you know, but you're right. That's exactly what they did. They 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 took, you know, they they took um, one plus two and came up with seventy two. Yeah. <laughs> well, and in. Uh, 
Paula and I say it differently. Our, our Senecoits is always how I've said it. So, you know, pick your tomato, tomato. It's because um, I'm from the south or the north, and you're from the south. <laughs> In the south, all syllables are treated equally. <laughs> hallelujah. <laughs> See, hallelujah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but talking about um, arsenicoid, um, I, I had mentioned earlier that uh, Rick Brentlinger points out that it's only been used 77 times in in uh, that that span of time from about the 8th century B.C. to A.D. 1450. And he actually, in his book, um, goes through some of the, the uses, how, so, how others have used this word. Um, many of them quote Paul um, and, and don't define the meaning, but um, in, some, uh, in some ancient writings and uh, ancient uh, um, theologians have used the word, uh, the Sibylline Oracle, the context is stealing, falsely accusing, and murder. Um, Aristides, in his Apology, uh, he was a Christian preacher um, around A.D. 125, the context in, in his speaking is actually interspecies rape or pederasty. Um, Greek gods killing, committing adultery, and arsenicoite with humans. So this context for Aristides is not uh, homosexuality or any loving same-sex relationship between equals. Um, Theophilus of Autolycus um, phrases it corrupt boys and filthiness. Um, these usages suggest a meaning of rape or pederasty, but do not refer to a committed relationship between male equals. Um, let's see. Uh, Isubius uh, uses the word in reference to pederasty or rape. Um, the text doesn't indicate homosexuality as we understand it today. And Isubius again using the word uh, to warn against adultery, um, followed by the phrase against nature, which which he says is non-procreative sex, mainly for heterosexuals. Um, so it's interesting that, that this is a this is a word that. Uh, that really has been used very rarely, and when it has been used, it's not used to uh, talk about anything that we would recognize today as um, homosexuality. Uh, certainly not uh, used in any way to condemn uh, loving or committed gay or lesbian relationships. Um, so it's it's more of it's more of the same of what we talked about um, in the Old Testament. Um, that what what is being condemned are, are sexual acts that use or abuse another person um, that uh, are, are outside of any sort of loving, committed relationship, um, shrine prostitution, uh, any sort of prostitution or pederasty, um, pedophilia sort of thing of sex uh, with, with someone under an age of, of consent. So this is... Um, really where the scholarship is pointing to um, with that word, even though we can't exactly be certain um, what the word meant in its context, just looking back through the history and the, the fabulous uh, research that, that uh, Rick Brentlinger has done in this book shows that uh, what we do know about this word has absolutely nothing to do with loving, committed homosexual relationships and is still, again, about use or abuse of, of our sexuality, which is wrong whether you're gay or straight. Are there any questions about that section? No. No. Any uh, uh, anyone having any epiphanies? <laughs> I don't know if it's appropriate to ask the question here or not. Go ahead, Jerry. On the on the third page, uh, it's an excellent handout, by the way. Thank you. 
Oh, thank uh, you. Of um, at the very last paragraph, it says that fact would not have prevented first-century Christians like Paul and the Gospel writers from discussing homosexual practices, however, because there were words for such things. Well, I'm, I, I've heard this before, and I'm not able. What if you know off the top of your head what word, what Greek words would there have been to to um, uh, convey that meaning if uh, if if you if he was going to use those? A Greek word, a word. You know that that I think that um, information I got that information from Dale Martin, uh-huh. and there, I think there's a link to his. Um, let me see if I can find the link because he may have spelled them out. Yeah. Um, but I think there. Oh no, it's the Dean Warboys, uh, the Christian, uh, the Christian Bible, and and the and the homosexual. Um, let me see if I can get it to go to the link and see because this is a um this really is a very good uh article that Dean uh Warboys has put up. And you know, Well and Hillmaniac uh Candace also addresses that whole issue. Does he? As yeah. Um but I don't remember which writing, so you kinda kinda got me um well, let me see if I can. With my hands tied, because yeah, to to, to be per- while she's looking for that, I guess Jerry the 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 issue with that is, and and I guess what's important is that you got to kind of get it in your head from a cultural standpoint that they did not understand. Homosexuality. Yeah, the reason I ask is because well, I understand that. I, I, because I I deal with a lot of um, um, professing Christians, uh, you know, who are homophobic, and so I, I would like to be able to you tell them yeah. what I've said this before to them, uh, but I want to be able to say what words. Well, here there. here it is, Jerry. It's in it's in Dean Warboys's um, article uh, when he talks about Paul. And some of the uh, you you should go to the to the site because I'm I'm sure I'm going to slaughter how they're said. Um, Aranomains is one. Uh, Kenaidos, Pederastes, which I'm sure uh, refers to pederasty. Uh, Pedo for throwro. <laughs> Not a clue. Uh, Palakos, and he says, and others. Those are the ones that that war boys. Um, uh, spells out for us. How do you spell his name, Candace? Uh, it's Dean Warboys. W A R. I mean, I'm sorry. W O R B O I S. And in the handout, it's in the. Um, okay, great. It's in the links section in the Thank in the, end of the handout. Yeah. So, so if if Paul really did want to to slam it to gay people or people who behaved as homosexuals in his time, he had the language to do it. He just didn't choose to do it. Well, and and this brings up another little interesting piece that just always causes all kinds of controversy. <clears throat> you y'all know the story of the Roman centurion um who in some of the gospels comes to Jesus looking for healing for his servant. And then, you know, we've got that in two of the Gospels. But then we have that same story told in um, the Gospel of John. And 
again, in this magnificent world of exegesis and in biblical interpretation, we always talk about the synoptics, which are Matthew and Mark and Luke. And then John, as a gospel, kind of gets set off to the side because the gospel of John has always been <clears throat> interpreted as an, apo uh, in a, an apology writing uh, for the divinity of Christ. And so <clears throat> by saying it that way, you don't have to deal with the obvious timing problems of of that scripture. You know, when you read the book of John, or the letter, however you want to call it, <clears throat> you've got Jesus, if, if you're trying to follow a timeline, one of the first things that he does is clear out the temple. Now, anybody who knew and has read about the political history of that time, um, that would have only happened one time. And, and in all likelihood, the synoptics have it right in the sense that that was probably one of the last things that he did. It was probably that political thing that, that uh, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back yeah. that, like, we got to get rid of this guy because, right. you know, he's now invading our pocketbook. Yeah. So, you know, when you read John, you have to read John number one as as somewhat of of a more of a definitive kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> it's also very interesting, though, that John kind of sort of tells the same story um, that was mentioned in the Gospels, except that John talks about it's a rich ruler, and he refers to the person in question who is sick as a son. Now, we've traditionally separated those and said, oh, no, those can't be the same story. But if you go back and you look at it, they're very similar. John uh, has Jesus going through that very same part of uh, the countryside um, that the other two stories do. And the difference would have been at that time, and again, understanding sexuality, is that slaves... To, this, to the Roman captains were provided to take care of their needs while they were uh, away from home. That included cooking. That included doing their laundry. It also included taking care of their sexual needs because these slaves had been castrated um, so that they would never reach puberty and they could be, and excuse me for those who, you know, don't want too vivid of a picture, would be the bottom. They would be able to behave as the woman in the sexual relationship and provide for the husband's, you know, the, the man's relief at that point. Right. Historically, it's talked about in other documents that in some cases, the connection between the centurion or the, the master would become so intense and so intimate that now, rather than referring to them as a servant, they would begin to refer to them as a son, which would explain how this castrated male had gotten into the good graces of that particular person's household. Yeah. Well, when you read that and you understand that there is a, and, I, and I'm not making a, a argument that, that this is correct. I mean, this is theory. But because the stories are so close, what we have here is John, 
who, by the way, if we give it credit to being one of Jesus' disciples, would have seen the relationship for what it was and called it for what it was and wrote about it the way it was. And that this was a servant who had become intimately involved, and now the master, the leader, the ruler, the centurion was absolutely distraught because he was about to lose that which was important to him. And so so consequently, uh, Jesus never gave it a second thought about what the relationship was. In all three of those stories, obviously, he heals the servant. And why? Because of the ruler or the centurion's faith in him being from God. So it's always been pretty hard for me to swallow um, that that God had something against homosexuals. Because even in a New Testament story, we have Jesus not really giving too much care over what their relationship was about, but only that this centurion seemed to have some faith in God. Well, Paul, I wanted to move us along um, to talk okay. about Romans 1 in the in the time that, that we have left, because that usually is the one that, that folks are have the most anguish about. That's the one that seems to, to hang people up the most when they're not worried about one rare word. <laughs> well, let's take a shot at Jude real quick. I can, I can do it in a minute All right. or two for you. Okay. Um, again, I got my screen back up. So the troublesome thing about Jude is Jude 1 7 and it says even as Sodom and Gomorrah the cities about them in a like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh now again talking out of our cultural bias you know what does that mean well strange flesh at least in my mind when i read that and of course when i read it as a kid i thought they were talking about be- i thought it was talking about bestiality to be perfectly frank mm-hmm. you know that this is people who are doing strange things with animals then you get the the newer translations and i had been looking for the revised standard and i couldn't come up with that but i did get the niv which says in a similar way sodom and gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion yeah that's what's in the handout is that niv version. right and then you have the message which has an uh, a, a, an interesting take on this I am laying this out clearly as I can, even though you once knew all this well enough and shouldn't need reminding. Here it is in brief. The master saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Later he destroyed those who defected. And you know the story of the angels who didn't stick to their post, abandoning it for the other darker missions. But they are now chained and jailed in the black hole until the great judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah which went to sexual rack and ruin, along with the surrounding cities that acted just like them, are another example. You have New, Intest- New Testament interpretation that what went on in, 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 in the Old Testament during Sodom and Gomorrah was an act of rape, was an act of sexual perversion. But it's rape. So again, Jude is pretty weak in, in trying to say that that's somehow a shot at homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So now you can go to Romans, Darwin. 
Oh, I was letting you go to Romans, son. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, okay. Um, let's uh, pull up Romans 1, and where this usually starts is with this quote. Although they claim to be wise, they became... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I need to back up a verse. Um, verse 20, No, I need to go forward to a verse, because this is the actual quote. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust one for another. Now, um, verse 26 is is usually when you get the emails and people quote to you, they quote verse 26 and verse 27. However, let's do some standard English here. If you have a paragraph that starts out because of this, what does that tell you? <laughs> you need to back up. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. In other words, something happened. Mm -hmm. You got to back up. Right. So I backed you up to 24 and said, therefore, God gave them over. Now, the only problem is with that is, wait a minute. There's more. But Therefore, more. God gave them over. Yeah. Something else happened. Yeah. So let's back up to the next thought. And we discover the truth about this passage. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to God. And their thinking became futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men, birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over. And because of this, and if you read those three paragraphs in context and you go to the place in Romans where Paul gets incredibly sarcastic when he starts talking about the fact, you know, look, you got you got an altar built to this God, you got an altar built to that God, and just to make sure that you cover the stuff that you've forgotten about, you've got an altar made to the unknown God. This is Paul, vintage Paul saying you are not worshiping the one true God. And all of these behaviors is something that you should know better than. And I don't ever allow people when they're throwing this at me, because like in the King James Version, it uses the word um, natural, you know, to begin with. And, and what do you describe as natural? Well, okay, um, you know, let's again talk about the culture. Um, in that time, it would not have been natural um, to fly. And I'm pretty sure that if Paul were to see 
what we're doing with missiles and rockets and everything else, he would agree with my grandmother that the weather problems is because of all the stuff we shoot up into the air. <laughs> yeah. So for people to hang on this word natural, what's natural, um, is a real bad thing to hang on. As a matter of fact, that, that whole word, uh, that word has always been defined by the bias of the culture in a particular decade. It is natural for us today to drive down the road and see out of nine out of ten drivers you see talking on a cell phone. That is a naturally occurring event. Would you would you agree? Oh yes, sure. (laughs) For men to claim a love for a man or a woman to claim love for a woman and live together and set up a house together in this culture and in this century is a naturally occurring event. As a matter of fact, I can make a better argument that homosexuality is a natural occurring event because homosexuality is historically documented through just about every culture, every race, every part of history that we look at. Now, it's been dealt with differently, but it does occur. And and, and and I can tell you that the people that are going to slam you because we say that gay is okay, and you sit there and go, well, wait a minute, history itself proves that homosexuality is a natural occurring event. Well, but, but wait, Paul. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Let, 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 me, let me play devil's advocate for just a moment. Um, okay. Because because I get I get this all the time, and and I was on a, a conservative Christian talk show a few years back, and um, I used the the argument that that homosexuality occurs naturally, it's in nature. Um, you know, animals animals have done it for centuries as well as humans, and the uh, conservative preacher who was on the show said that he said he said that is part of the fall. Yeah. That is part of the brokenness of this world, and the Creator did not intend for that to happen. Man, I would have asked him <laughs> when he had that personal conversation with God to get the blueprint. Well, because this is a, the, again, this is you got to go back. Okay, this go ahead. I thought you were same, done. Well, this is the same man who said that if it weren't for the Bible. If he didn't believe that the Bible was the Word of God, he would feel free to go and and cheat on his wife and and kill people and 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 rape and pillage and do all sorts of things. And I told him that if he was really a Christian, those things would never cross his mind in the first place. <laughs> right. I mean, was did he ever pay attention to the one and only command that Jesus gave? Apparently not. But but you know, uh, he was just trying to score a point. But 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 his but his whole thing is that you know he that. When we come upon these these people and the and the, like the people that are you know the, the man who's praying for for Ruth's salvation, um, you know we come upon these people and they're gonna have an answer for everything. Yeah. yeah. You know that, that okay we say it's natural because it occurs in nature. Well, that's part of the fall. Well, you know the Bible isn't the word of God. Well, if I didn't believe the Bible was the word of God, I'd I'd be off raping, raping and pillaging. You know, well, I mean, and that's why I started. The presentation that I made here tonight by saying that if you are going to hang on to that the Bible as we have it today is the inerrant Word of God, then tonight's presentation is going to be extremely uncomfortable and and it's going to be nerve-wracking. 
Well, well, and I guess the 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 point I'm trying to drive at, and and I, and I do want to to uh, thoroughly cover Romans, and if anyone has any questions, we can address those. But what I, what I'm trying to get at is, okay, the folks on this call might accept your premise, and and we can right. sit here and understand. Okay, yeah, you know, we understand that there have been translation errors and this and that. Um, but what we're faced with, the reality is is that we come upon these people who do believe that it is the inerrant word of God. And our choices become quite limited. They're not going to listen to a nuanced argument about context. They're not they're not going to back up to 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 verse 21. You know, they're they're going to give you 20, 26 and 27 and that's going to be it. So either you have to say, okay, I'm in an intractable argument, you know, and and walk away. And go, you know, we're going to have to agree to disagree because, I'm, you know, suddenly you're in a proof text war. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but we have to come away from that sort of an encounter okay with ourselves. Does that make sense to folks? Yeah. If I, if I could add just two things. Go ahead. One is, first of all, I, I tell people like this. First of all, we don't worship the Bible. That's idolatry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we worship God. And you're not only worshiping the Bible. You're worshiping your own interpretation of the Bible, which means you're worshiping really, you're setting up an idol of yourself and your perceptions. Oh, but Jerry, they don't interpret, they just read it. Yeah, well, it doesn't read that way. And, I, and that's what I just <laughs> wanted, that was my second me. thing I just wanted to ask, uh, or at least suggest. Uh, I like King James, not only because Jesus read it, but it's because I, I, I like, that's my preference. <laughs> but if you look at, at verse 26, for example, uh-huh. for even their women did change. The natural uh-huh. use. See, change to me is the crucial issue here. And then on 27, yeah. likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman. To me, that indicates heterosexuals who are engaging in homosexual acts. Right. And as we know from context, or, you know, we, I think we agree with context, that we're talking about <clears throat> called prostitution and those kinds of things. But they, they left. They changed. Uh, it, it isn't, we're not talking here about constitutional homosexuals. We're talking about heterosexuals who God gave them up. Uh, to all sorts of things that were not natural to them, so they changed the natural use of the woman. They they to do these other things. Yeah. These aren't and, and, and actually, you bring up a really good point, Jerry, because I've <clears throat> when I've been confronted with those same kinds of things that um, Candace was just talking about, is I've always brought up the whole thing about ex-gay ministries and say, well, then you ought to shut down an ex-gay ministry because. You're taking somebody who sees themselves as naturally being gay, and you're forcing them, um, by your interpretation of the scripture, to behave differently. Yes. And they don't. And at least I've noticed, Candace, that that people it at least gives them pause for a second, because <laughs> <laughs> because all of a sudden you've taken their argument and you've thrown it back in their face and said, well, then what you ought to be doing is leaving well enough alone. Because if you've got somebody uh, who, from the time of puberty, felt like that they were attracted to the same sex, and now here you are, 30, 40 years later, trying to change whom they love, then are you not doing just exactly what Paul was lamb-blasting? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. But I, I really... Well, go ahead, Paul. No, that... that I, and and I think that the, the as hard as that argument is, Candace, and and it really is. I mean, there's at some point where you just got to kind of sit there and go, you know what? Um, 
you, you're basing this on 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 your interpretation of scripture and until you can give me the original documents and this is usually where they fall apart in this <laughs> argument is until you can show me the original documents so that we can clearly understand by today's language what was being said then you really can't define oh but um, but god but god preserved everything you know, God, well, God made sure that all those scribes got it right. I mean, I'm, and I'm that goes, you the argument. That goes right, but that goes right along with the people who, you know, blow themselves up and, and take oh, yeah. out hundreds of innocent people because they're going to get 70 virgins. Yeah. I know it's irrational, but, but these are the arguments we face. You know, we've got to be prepared when they come. I think that the, the if, if I had to take a guess at how – for let's say if we're talking about the hardcore gay person who is just really struggling with this passage mm-hmm. i think that one of the things that we have to say is that the interpretation of scripture being anti-gay is a house of cards yeah. and i think that if you begin to show people that in fact you have mistranslations you in fact have cultural bias by the time you get to Romans, you begin to have a problem, and, and that person can begin to see what the problem is. And, and I think that for most folks, if it, not, not this group of folks, but for most folks, if you take the person that was raised in the Catholic Church and they get hammered with this constantly, um, just like they get hammered with Sodom and Gomorrah, um, by the time you show them some of the critical problems with with translation of scripture that we have today now it's a little bit easier for them to read romans and understand what their own cultural bias is and look at that word natural and go hmm because again you start raising questions that as in 1959 1960 1961, I came home with welts across my left wrist. Mm. And the reason I come home with welts across my left wrist was because when we began to print letters, I picked up the pencil with my left hand. Ah, yes. And it was scripturally based because of this definition of natural, what was natural that I could not write with my left hand. That that was not natural by biblical definition. Now, I need to tell you that my father and I um, have agreed on very little over the years. But my father, when I come home with those welts, wanted to know what had happened. He assumed that I had smarted off to a teacher, which at that point, those welts, Yeah, those welts could have stayed there, and he'd have given me a few more. But when I said to him, Daddy, I wrote with the wrong hand, he immediately shut up. And the next morning, took me by the hand, marched me into the school, and in in front of my entire first grade, second grade class, whatever it was at the time, informed the teacher that if she ever touched me for what hand I wrote with again, that he would come back and turn her inside out. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> then he proceeded to take me down to the principal's office and announce the very same thing to the principal and that I was to be left alone. If I smarted off, that was one thing, but you leave him alone as to what hand he uses. So I have that was a lesson for me at 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 a very young age and I didn't know it at the time and I think it's kind of followed me into adulthood that you know what what people do this whole thing of natural and nurture is a very fluid a very fluid thing and that's why I did make the comment and I think that that is important um, when we're talking about these issues, that what is natural and what is nurturing changes from one generation to the next. Mm -hmm. And so when we get into that conversation of Romans and, and this whole talk of what, people giving up what's natural, again, let's look at it in historical context. You've got proof later on in Romans that Paul's problem with sexual behavior was all centered around idolatry. And it would have been for him natural to have sex within the scope of a relationship that honored God. The sexual practice of prostitution and temple and the fertility cults just sent him over the edge. And 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 so when when he was writing Romans, the you when you back it up and you take it in context, he's saying, "Yeah, look, man, you know that you're not supposed to be committing adultery, but you're going down to the temple and justifying what you're doing just so your crops will grow. You've exchanged the truth of God for a lie." Mhm. Mm and so I think that that becomes, it, it, as hard as it is, and you're not going to convince everybody because, I mean, you know, you've got, you've got theologians, not theologians, you've got evangelists, you know, that have made millions of dollars mm -hmm. based on the fact that they've got everybody terrified that Jesus is coming back next week and is going to destroy the world. And I think it's one of those things that only time will tell. It's one of those things, especially for gay and lesbian folk, as well as transgender, that the longer you live and the more experiences you have, you begin to understand that the word natural and the whole concept of nurture is, in fact, very fluid from one generation to the next. For, for the Apostle Paul, um, marriage was unnatural. He thought True. the world was coming to an end and people should have got married. Uh, right. And he thought slavery was natural. So, right. And again, and, and, and Andy, that, that, that's a really good piece to put into this, not because you're trying to win the argument with with the ultimate fundamentalist because and and Candace and I have had this conversation time and time again um they're a waste of time oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah they they're just absolutely a waste of time they're going to read it the way they're going to read it and yeah. that's it yeah. i mean and and we've got lots of those people i mean my god um 
and I may be opening a hornet's nest here, <laughs> but take a look at, at the Second Amendment of the Constitution. I see nowhere in that reading of that amendment that says individuals get to have guns. Right. <laughs> it gets to say there's militias, which in turn get to have guns. And of course, you know, then they start to stretch the argument, the gun toters do, by saying, well, in order to have a militia, you have to have individual guns, so therefore, and I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. That's not what it says. So, again, uh, I think that Andy has a, just a, a critical point, just as Jerry brought up a critical point, and it really proves the the point that I'm making here, that it is, this is a very fluid word. And so the people that you have to convince of that are not the hardcore people because, you know, those are the people that are going to lay down and die. They're going to drink the Kool-Aid for <laughs> Jones, and, and they're going to believe that Bush is the Messiah. Well, they'd rather die than give you an inch. They really would. They'll, well, they'll and, change, and, and they would. And what's, real, and what's really set. And what's really sad about that is the the number of lives that they destroy yeah. because of their unwillingness to understand that this that we're again, you know, you could say this about scripture. Um, you've got sixty six books, but folks, go back and read the the history of the Council of Nicaea. I mean, there were books that were thrown out that if. If we knew the whole truth today, we would kind of sit there and go, "What the hell were these people thinking?" Yeah. <laughs> what you know? Oh, wait a minute! They wanted an emotional religion. They wanted a religion of the heart, because if I've got your heart, I can control you. Yeah. Well, we're coming up on. Um uh, time to, to start wrapping up, but I'd like to open up the, the floor for questions or comments if anyone has anyone anything that we haven't covered or if you have a question over something that we have. Well, I think um, Romans is a great theological book, and to take any two verses out of it uh, and, and, uh, and use them for interpreting what the the book is about uh, does it a great disservice, and uh, that's a shame. Um, I often say, read the whole thing and come back. You know. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a great piece of classical rhetoric. It really is. Paul yeah. is a master. This is an uh, Romans is an amazing work. It really is. Well, it's you know, the foundation of the church, my friends. Yeah. Uh, you want to talk about the the cement that poured into the organization of what the church looks like today and all the denominational squabbles over one thing or another, you can trace it right back to this letter. Yeah. 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 So this is this is the guy who who, you know, kinda said, Okay, here's how it needs to be done if we're gonna believe in one God. And and the council in 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 three hundred, they had a decision to make. And the decision was were they going to keep these other writings, some of which were more popular than anything that Paul wrote yeah. at the time, or are we going to grab at the emotion and you know, it's often said that there is nothing worse 
than a convert. <laughs> and remember, yeah. Paul was a convert. And, and you know, people just get really mad when I when I remind them that this man was writing out of a place of guilt. Yeah, yeah. yeah very true, very, very true. For One him. point, if I could add, is that ahead, what's Jerry. ironic about all this is that the uh, Book of Romans is probably the best explication of the Gospel of Grace. Uh, along with yeah. Galatians, but uh, certainly the, the most detailed explication of grace uh, that we have. Uh, and uh, yet, yet there'll be the legalists, of course, who will impose their own uh, mindset, their own legalistic mindset on, on a book of grace. Well, you know, one of the hottest verses for for gay folks um, to latch on, and I, and I do this a lot of time, use this particular passage when people are are first coming out and 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 they're struggling with this whole idea that they believe in, in, in Christ as their personal Savior and all that stuff that goes with that, is Romans 8, 31 through 39 or 40. What can we say to all this? If God is for us, mm-hmm. who can be against us? Yeah. And then he does this. I mean, it's just an absolutely powerful, powerful, powerful argument that, look... All these rules and all these things they've been saying about you all this time has now passed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a I'm a big believer that Romans is one of my favorite books just just because it is Jerry that 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 perfect blueprint for grace. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you got to get past, <coughs> um, and you know, and I just thought of this. Based on what you all just said, um, which is probably a bad thing when you're doing a presentation, but um, <laughs> what I just thought of is that again, let's look at the way people write. Paul had to set it up. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. And so then, chapter one of Romans becomes: Look, folks, here's how you blew it. Here's how you exchanged, and now look chapter, at this. Well, chapter one is his hook. Chapter yeah, one, because he's, right. he's writing to to the Jewish Christians in Rome. Right. Chapter one is right. look. Chapter one is the hey, look at all those, look at all those horrible, filthy, disgusting people. And then chapter two is the punchline. Right. You're right. no better than they are. Yeah. Don't be all puffed up now. Because yeah. you do it too. And anytime you and condemn y- someone else, you condemn yourself. And you can have a lot of fun with this. If those people who are trying to use this as a, a weapon against homosexuality um, just kind of present them the timeline yeah. as to when Romans was written and the argument that was going on between Paul and the original 12 at the time, or the whatever was left, 10, I guess, um, because we know from other writings that have not been included in Scripture that the disciples were sending out um, surrogates from Jerusalem to spy on Paul to see what he was saying. Yeah, Paul and Peter were really in agreement on a lot of things. Oh, yeah, there was huge disagreement between Paul and Peter. I mean, it took a dream to, to, to change Peter's mind about the whole Gentile thing, which you would have thought he would have understood. <laughs> and Paul understood it based on his conversion. Which, again, is why I think that it's really important that – and I think that that's why you get the Passion 
of uh, grace as strongly as you do in this book, uh, because Paul was a murderer, mm-hmm. yeah, and he knew it, yeah. So you better have a big, heavy dose of grace for whatever you might have done. (laughs) Are there any other questions or comments? Well, this is Ruth, and I appreciate I got some new stuff tonight. I always, um, well, a couple of things is I think it's really important to know this stuff, and using the Bible as basically a rational argument that doesn't, speak to the visceral stuff that is where I think people's um, problems with, where their problems with homosexuality begin Mm -hmm. is the belly stuff. So it's a stumbling block that we have to deal with, um, but it's not going to persuade people, you know, on its own. They They claim it's a stumbling block and... And I don't think it is as much yeah. as they say because it's it's sort of the let me give you this rational excuse for what isn't what isn't a a rational feeling. Yeah, I, I agree. That's why, that's why it's so hard to persuade people. I think because because you're talking in different ways, really. Yeah, yeah. Who was the theologian, uh, Candace, that uh, 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 wrote about the foolishness of the cross? Was it, was that was that well was that Kirkard or was that Tillich or was that actually Karl Barth? Because that whole concept just hits on what Ruth just talked about. Mm-hmm. You you can't take something as irrational as the cross and 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 apply rationality to it. So I think that that's I I I really like that comment, Ruth, because that that just really brought that to mind. And I think Paul doesn't he talks about he the foolishness of 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 the cross and how this is, you know, if 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 how hard this is for us to believe, and it's by faith. That's why he makes such a big deal, um, you know, why when we try to make up the. Uh, the theological disagreement between James and Paul. You know, James says faith without works is dead, and Paul says no, it's by grace. And we've always tried to separate those two things, and I think it's because of what Ruth raised, is that, you know, for us, working is logical. Mm -hmm. Just to have faith is not so logical, because it means that you've got to believe in something that you can't put your hands on. We can see work. Yeah. We can feel attitude, but we can't see or smell or touch faith. That becomes a deeply personal thing. And, and so, yeah, it be, it, I, that's, I think that if you spend your time say, saying to people, look, you're trying to be rational about something that's not rational, <laughs> that, that you're on to a good start to at least get them to pause and when you're talking and, and, and about this stuff and how it affects gay people, um, I think that that's a, a part of the conversation that can make sense to them. Because we all know as we sit here, there is nothing rational 
about love. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, therefore, there's nothing rational about God loving us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, folks, thank for, you, for having well, thank me. Thank you, Paul. Candace, thank you so much.